Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we start, a shout out to new Patreon subscribers, Laura and Andrew. Thank you so much for supporting the show over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And we really hope you enjoy your bonus stuff. Yeah, now you can get the newsletter and feel just a little smug because you know what the next episodes are going to be. That's fun. It's fun to know things. And an additional shout out for Andrew, who is also a podcaster. They're a disabled person and host of the show Disability After Dark, which shines a light on aspects of the disabled experience like sexuality that are otherwise kept in the dark. So go check it out anywhere you get your podcasts. And one more thing before we dive into our topic for today, um, we, me and Anna, are going to be presenting at the Opening the Ancient World Conference, uh, which will be held on the internet. If you're listening to this when it comes out, this weekend, um, August Ah. 15th and 16th. Oh, I know. Oh, God. Um, Yeah, and so we are one of many, many people who will be presenting at this. Um, We are going to be talking about the dirt. Yeah. (laughs) A little sense of how the sausage is made and why. Why are we making this sausage? why, Why do we make this sausage? Well, if anyone can talk about this particular dirt sausage, it's us. Yeah. And so um, better yet for you, registration is free. So um, if that sounds intriguing, head on over to saveancientstudies.org to learn more. And you can RSVP there. I'd give you the full link to the RSVP, but that's a lot of... It's okay. So saveancientstudies.org. Our listeners can figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. This week, we're taking on a topic that we've touched on a lot in other episodes, but never addressed fully, the abandonment of archaeological sites. Why do people leave a place where they had been living? Was it by choice? What factors might contribute to the complete abandonment of a place? As we usually do, we'll start with a conceptual approach. um, And then we'll look at some case studies where abandonment occurred in different parts of the world for different reasons. Yeah. And then at the end, we'll have a little fun with the idea and look outside the world of archaeology just a little. But don't worry, we won't abandon you, listeners. We promise we're never going to give you up. We're never going to let you down. Um, never, no, never. No, 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 no. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> no, never get. Eh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll make it up to you with a term that I think you'll enjoy. Amber, are you familiar with penarchy? <laughs> I think I found my political orientation. <laughs> penarchy? Uh, I, I don't know, because it, it was coined as a political term, and I, I don't know if you're going to like that. But Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Tell me, tell me about... At the disco, I chimed in with, haven't you heard of oh, no. complex systems? Um, so this term was coined by botanist and economist... Why not, not both? Yeah, 4K, no, less does. Paul-Emile Dupuy in what? 1860, when you could be 
both a botanist and an economist, and it was fine. I mean, we just, had like a pretty robust sense of plants and economies at that point. And yet. And yet. To describe a form of governance that would encompass all others. So a form of governance that would then govern all governing bodies. Weirdly, it was then used mostly in poetry for a few decades, like the the panarchy of the stars. What? Um, yeah, it was it was used poetically rather than in writings on economics or plants um, for a while. But since then, it's been adapted to describe any system of nested hierarchies. It's particularly used. Uh, within ecosystems, so ecosystem studies, and systems studies in general. So despite this sounding very much like a math thing, I actually know something about this because a big chunk of my dissertation research had to do with modeling ecosystems and figuring out the factors that caused change within them. Really? So, yeah. The the third <laughs> as yet unpublished paper of my dissertation oh my um, deals a lot with <laughs> complex systems and things that cause them to collapse. That sounds awful. I mean, it sounds really interesting, but that sounds like I mean, really hard. given my understanding of it, it was written in a way that I think is, you know, readable. But <laughs> as I said, as yeah, yet but you have to do all that reading. <laughs> I did do a lot of, of reading. The unreadable. And, yeah. Gosh. Okay. Well, tell me more about. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to do the work panarchy. for you. <laughs> Great, <laughs> the panarchy in the systems context emerged from environmental resource management as a way to represent the dual and seemingly contradictory characteristics of all complex systems, ecological, economic, social, whatever system you're describing. All systems encompass both stability and change, right? Because there are periods where systems are stable. There are periods when systems are in flux. It's best described by a model of a continual adaptive cycle of growth, accumulation, restructuring, and renewal. So those are the key stages of these systems, and three of them have um, symbols that represent them. So this comes from the Sustainable Scale Project, which is a, a website that I found that articulated this well. So there is the exploitation stage, which is designated by the letter R, and that is rapid expansion. So Say you're a population and you of, of any organism, and okay. you find a very fertile niche of resources to exist in. Right, likely you're going to your this population is going to expand because things are great. You've got all the resources. You are reproducing, and you're going to reproduce and reproduce until you reach the carrying capacity, the limit of that environment. K okay. is the next stage, and that's conservation. And so that is slow accumulation and storage of energy and material are emphasized. So this is when a population reaches carrying capacity and kind of levels out for a bit. So the storage of energy here, if we're talking about humans, it's like... It's like reproductive food? energy. Uh, what? What's that? Like, what? Like the equivalent of like resources equaling successful reproduction. So like if a population is well fed and, you know, they're able to take care of themselves, then they can sort of have a steady reproductive rate. If a population is deprived of resources, they're not going to reproduce as, as successfully. Okay. Yeah. And so the population can kind of very slowly grow or kind of generally stay at relative stasis in terms of population size. And then at some point, 
there is an omega phase, which is called the release phase. And so this is when something happens, there is a factor that tips the balance and the population rapidly declines. Or it it can be not so rapid, but it's a a phase of population decline. So something happens in the environment. So say there's a wildfire and a lot of the the food resources are destroyed. Or say um, if it's a a non-human population, like a predator, a new species of predator comes into the area, right? And all of a sudden that population is now threatened. So conditions change in such a way that the population then declines. Okay, so R... Mm -hmm. So R is exploitation. So that's when the population grows rapidly. Yep. And then K is when the population is still growing, but at a slower, slower, steady at a state. So, okay. So, okay. So R is increase. Mm -hmm. K is stability and omega is decrease. Yes. And so in that case, you'd have um, in the K stage, the, the stasis stage, you'd have more or less members of the population being born and dying at sort of the same rate. Right. right. So okay. the, the population isn't increasing or decreasing. It's just kind of right. si- it's sitting there. Yeah. Um, it's not then, the individuals in the population that are remaining static, but like right. that are stable. Overall it's numbers. The, the overall numbers of births, mm-hmm. deaths and so forth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so... Yeah. And then, and then Omega, everything kind of hits the fan a little bit. Something happens, right? There is a factor or a combination of factors because if we're talking about complex systems, lots of things. Sure. It could be a giant fan. (laughs) No, tell me more. Spin this story out. I want to hear about this giant fan. What is the population of what? Moths? Birds? (laughs) Oh no. Oh, like turbines. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) well, yeah, the, the bird hits the fan and, and we get our omega stage and then the population declines. And then there's a, a phase that for some reason, I take it up with economists, I guess, doesn't get a letter or a symbol. It's just the reorganization phase. And that can happen at different speeds. It can happen slowly or, or rapidly, but it completely depends on the scale of the thing you're looking at. And that's when the population adapts, reorganizes, um, is able to kind of either pick itself up and move somewhere else or adapt to whatever the local environmental change was, uh, adapt to whatever the factors were that caused the decline. And again, this is a cycle. So move back again towards the exploitation phase of R. So it is a cycle of, of growth, stasis, decline, reorganization, regrowth. And so it's in these waves Right. So the really mind blowing thing is scale here because you can trace these same four phases within any system, any system of moving parts, any collection of things that are interrelated and interact with one another to form a some some sort of um, discrete system that you can look at and describe the parts of this four phase cycle applies to anything, whether it's on the molecular level, the level of an entire planet. And it's not just natural systems, it's social systems, systems of government or other forms of sociocultural organization go through these phases. So this is just this, this is the part that I, as I was writing this script, I was kind of hoping would, would freak your bean because this is, mine is a very cynical bean, especially when it comes to economic modeling. (laughs) 
Well, modeling, I, it's, I, a, I, it's a cookie cutter approach that of course won't apply to everything. I've, just, I've been, I've, many economic models have been brought to my attention that are not applicable to reality. Or perhaps yeah. <laughs> even the thing that the modeling was co- was was <laughs> attempting to address. My 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 bean my bean is resistant, but I'm okay. very interested in this. Okay, so I am not making the claim. Let me be clear that this is applicable universally, but I want you to be astonished at the breadth the breadth of the applicability of these phases of of existence. Right. Okay. So, for example, give me some examples. For example, the evolution of a species in response to habitat change, right? So this is, this is a very sort of biological application of this, where you have a species that encounters a change in their habitat that makes them less fit, right? So their, their population starts to decline, but then over the course of many generations, you have offspring that start to be born with adaptations that are, that render them more fit for that environment. Once you have those offspring with enough adaptation to the changed environment, then you can start building a new population so that that cycle of regrowth and exploitation begins again in the changed environment. You also have, um, when you have decomposition, so this is a new example now, um, the first stages of decomposition are often aerobic. So you have aerobic bacteria, um, chomp, chomp, chomp. And, and decomposing mm-hmm. material. And then gradually, if it's a closed environment, so something that's buried or something that's in other ways deprived of oxygen, it's not out in the open, um, gradually you're going to have the aerobic bacteria using up all the oxygen because that's how they breathe. I mean, that's they don't really breathe, but that's how they live. They consume oxygen. And gradually they're going to essentially kill themselves off because they've consumed all the oxygen in the environment and anaerobic bacteria species start to take over, right? So that's a complete sort of wipeout of one population, but then you still have another population coming in that's going to go through that same cycle of of growth and stasis and collapse, etc. Um, the collapse of a political regime, right? You can have a, a regime that starts off very successfully and comes to power and stays in power for a certain length of time and then is toppled. Uh, yeah, right? it takes up all the oxygen in a metaphorical yep. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, and in the same way, sort of analogous to that is the bankruptcy of a business, right? A, a business that kind of grows faster than it can sustain itself for whatever reason. Um, it, you know, stays in business for a while, but then fails. And then, you know, as, as we started off with this description, humans exploiting resources in a landscape, whether in the past or now currently. Oh, right? that's what we're talking about today. Uh, okay. Yeah. So any sort of cyclical or oscillating process that happens in biology or social organization that you can think of, you can try applying these phases to it and it fits a lot of the time. Sometimes it won't because there are always this is a word I love, stochastic factors. Mm-hmm. Stochastic just means random. Um, that will mess with the pattern, right? So it's a broadly applicable pattern that's really, really cool in in, in ways of kind of making sense out of how systems grow and then um, succeed and then fail, right? And then and then regrow from that. It's a it's a interesting way of kind of parsing out that process. Um, and so I, I wanted to introduce that concept because that's going to apply to the case studies that we're going to talk about in this episode. 
Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for introducing me to something that I had literally never heard of before. Um, so since Anna suggested that we can um, think of any sort of cyclical or oscillating <laughs> process in biology or social organization, I'm now going to think of every one that I can and text oh, them to Anna in succession. Oh. Um, but mm. while I'm doing that, um, we all can take a quick break and then we'll get back and we'll return to case studies where we may or may not know the circumstances of abandonment. Turn off your noties, Anna. <laughs> I'm on do not disturb. Don't worry. <laughs> it's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. For the first of our case studies, we're starting big, um, palatial even. <laughs> a Canaanite palace, no less. Uh, so Tel Cabri is in a site in what is today the state of Israel. And in the 18th century BCE, it was a, a massive palace that National Geographic, where much of the information I'll be sharing with you comes from, helpfully calls, quote, larger than a shopping mall, <laughs> end quote. So helpful. Thank you, oh, Nadio. <laughs> Thank you for choosing a category of building that... Is nothing if not in, variable. Yeah. It, like, are we talking Which King of Prussia? Mall? Are we talking Crystal I was Mall like, in Waterford, Connecticut? Mall of the Inner Emirates. Mall of America. Well, Mall of the Emirates is bigger, so sorry. I was um, including various sizes of mall. I was <laughs> just there's rather big, big. And then there's big, Just big. Lot, lots of rather large malls. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Um, no. Uh, the palace had a banquet hall, storage rooms for wine, and paintings. You know, palace stuff. Yeah. It didn't have a ski slope. Does the Mall of the Emirates have a ski slope? It does. Gosh. And that's silly. Hmm. Then, at some point during that century, the palace was suddenly abandoned and left vacant for almost a millennium. Um, like, other people could have moved in, but ugh, the upkeep. It's, Maybe there's like tax liens on it. No idea. No, no, no. There wasn't tax liens. Don't don't take me seriously. Some 3,700 years later, beginning in 2009 CE, archaeologists digging up the palace were stumped. This beautiful and important building obviously had served as a political center for some sort of Canaanites in the region. Um, and it had been renovated shortly before it fell into disuse. 
Yeah, like the, the paintings world? were fresh. Oh, <laughs> like, what a shame. Oh. <laughs> so why did its inhabitants leave, Anna? Was it a comet? Let's learn together. <laughs> okay. Uh, the 75-acre site of Tilcabri lies in a tectonically active region, so it would be easy to lay the blame on an earthquake. But the team of archaeologists at the site wanted to actually base their reasoning on evidence. Hey. No, novel. So they didn't opt for the easy way out. Instead, the Telcabri team spent several dig seasons ruling out other possibilities. With support from the National Geographic Society. Okay. Okay. Right, okay. <laughs> they looked for evidence of drought, flood, or other environmental factors that may have driven away the residents. Perhaps. So other environmental factors like brimstone. Or an airburst that vitrified. It wasn't a comet. That that tiny. <laughs> this, everybody's just gonna like watch my slow descent into madness, <laughs> comet madness. Okay, so they looked for signs of fire, weapons, or unburied bodies that may have indicated violence or combat. None of said evidence presented itself. In 2011, the Telcabri team began uncovering a trench that appeared to cut straight through the palace. At first, the archaeologists assumed it was modern, perhaps an irrigation channel for the avocado farm that surrounded the site, or maybe it was dug during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. So, Telcabri co-director Eric Klein of George Washington University said, quote, There was a battle in 1948 right across the road. In our notes, we were calling it a modern tank trench, end quote. Yet over the course of several excavation seasons, the archaeologists began to notice features in the palace that didn't seem quite right. Ooh, spooky. Some walls were slightly offset. Some floors were a little wavy, sloped at odd angles, or pockmarked, likely by heavy objects falling from a height. It's uh, like, like a not, comet? No. You're regretting giving me this section. Uh, by 2019, a hundred feet of the trench had been uncovered, and archaeologists noticed that three courses of a wall from the palace appeared to have fallen into the trench. Michael Lazar, a research scientist at the University of Haifa's Department of Marine Geosciences and lead author of the PLOS One paper, had visited Tel Cabri in 2013 when the team first uncovered a storage room for wine. Uh, Lazar recalls, quote, I saw a bunch of jars that had been smashed by a roof collapse. Asaf, another team member, said, what do you think? And I said, earthquake. And Asaf said, no, what do you really think caused it? End quote. Comment. The mystery continues. He's <laughs> like, an earthquake. The researchers then started analyzing the fine grains of sediment that covered the palace floor and found that it was a chaotic tumble of plaster and broken wall laid down in a single event. A lack of mud slurry showed Ugh. that the floor was not exposed to the elements for any amount of time before the sediment layer covered it. This was an immediate event, not a slow decay. Taken together, all the odd features began to make sense. The offset walls, the sloping pockmarked floors, the enormous clay wine jar smashed in place, the microgeological evidence, and the fissure that split the palace in two. Yeah, so that trench, yeah. it wasn't a trench. Oh, it wasn't a trench, it was a fissure. Yep. Whoa. The ground just went... Whoa. According to that, sediment records from the Dead Sea indicate that an earthquake occurred in the region around 1700 BCE, the time the palace was abandoned. So an earthquake would be the only likely explanation. An important detail for the present 
and the interpretation of the past is that the fissure that damaged the palace likely originated from a fault other than the Dead Sea Fault, the main source of tectonic activity in that area. Lazar added that the Kabri Fault had been removed from the new map of potentially active faults in Israel. Yet if it was indeed responsible for the damage wrought just 3,700 years ago, a mere blip in geological time, its potential for future activity cannot be ruled out. Yeah, put it back on that map. Yeah. yeah, so they had this nice new palace. The floors had just been waxed. Everything was freshly painted. And then... Ain't that the way it goes? Yeah. It's the uh, the lost verse from the Al- Alanis Morissette song. Moving on to a different site at a different time. Cahokia in what is today Illinois was once one of the largest cities in North America, the product of an agrarian community that reached its height around the 12th century CE. It's characterized by more than 100 earthen mounds across six square miles, all massive earthworks projects, and about 80 of these mounds still exist today. You might have already guessed this part, but during the 13th and 14th centuries, Cahokia's population declined, and the city was eventually abandoned. Lots of theories have been floated to explain why, and archaeologists have been looking at that question for quite some time. So first, I'd like to bring to everyone's attention a study that tells us what didn't cause the abandonment of Cahokia. Yeah. More to the point, this study counters a persistent theory about human resource exploitation. And so this comes from Washington University in St. Louis. No one knows for sure why people left Cahokia, though many environmental and social explanations have been proposed. One oft-repeated theory is tied to resource exploitation, specifically that Native Americans from densely populated Cahokia deforested the area, an environmental misstep that could have resulted in erosion and localized flooding. But such musings about self-inflicted disaster are outdated, and they're not supported by physical evidence of flooding issues. Caitlin Rankin, an assistant research scientist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, who conducted this work as part of her graduate studies at Washington University, said, quote, There's a really common narrative about land use practices that lead to erosion and sedimentation and contribute to all of these environmental consequences. When we actually revisit this, we're not seeing evidence of the flooding, end quote. This hypothesis, first proposed in 1993, suggests that tree clearance in the uplands surrounding Cahokia led to erosion, causing increasingly frequent and unpredictable floods of the local creek drainages in the floodplain where Cahokia was constructed. Rankin noted that archaeologists have broadly applied narratives of ecocide, the idea that societies fail because people overuse or irrevocably damage the natural resources that their people rely on, to help explain the collapse of past civilizations around the world. Rapa Nui? Anyone? Although many researchers have moved beyond classic narratives of ecocide made popular in the 1990s and early 2000s, Cahokia- oh, that's a really that's a really nice way to say Jared Diamond. Yep. <laughs> Cahokia is one such major archaeological site where untested hypotheses have persisted. The researchers performed analyses of the actual ground table around some of the mounds. With sedimentological analyses, they were able to actually look at the shifts in the local topography over time at a small scale, like the the level of single episodes of sedimentation, and look at the ways in which sediment accumulated and whether that's likely to have been from flooding or just regular accumulation of, you know, dust. Yeah. And they determined that the ground surface on which the mounds were constructed remained stable well past the abandonment of Cahokia, all the way through to the industrialization of that area. So 
no evidence for catastrophic flooding. So it is true that the people living at Cahokia cut down thousands of trees. The wooden palisades that surround the city are still preserved, and the logs are there. You can count them. There's a lot of them. But it doesn't seem as if deforestation and subsequent erosion was a major issue, which is not to say it didn't exist, but it wasn't a crisis. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what did happen? It's poop science to the rescue. I'm I'm sorry? Um, Pop science? Popular science? No, popular. Oh, no. This comes from a write-up in Forbes that I have excerpted and paraphrased. No, it's cool. It's, it's poop science. Researchers collected sediment from the bottom of Horseshoe Lake, which lies north of the Cahokia Mounds State Historic Site. They were able to obtain both archaeological and environmental data within the samples, permitting them to assess how the size of Cahokia's populations fluctuated with changes in precipitation patterns. Within these samples, they found traces of Cahokian poop in the form of fecal stanols, molecules that the stomach produces during digestion that are voided along with human feces. These are incidentally the the same molecules that were used to um, determine some aspects of Neanderthal diet, like those those stanols. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm, We've talked about that before. Yeah. Yeah. Precipitation events likely carried the stanols from land to Horseshoe Lake. It's a sort of drainage reservoir. Uh, ah, like mm. the um, like the like the old aphorism says, rolls downhill. It sure does. And when Cahokia was more densely populated, more stanols accumulated in lake sediment. So you have a layered record, essentially, of how many people were pooping at Cahokia. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, more or less. At the same time, from those same sediments, the researchers looked at oxygen isotope ratios. These are proportions of the different types of oxygen atoms, isotopes, that directly reflect the amount of precipitation in a given season. At the time that people started leaving Cahokia around the 13th century, so fewer and fewer stanholes, the area was experiencing less rainfall. The trend continued throughout the abandonment of the site, so the researchers suggest that climate change and the area becoming more arid would have meant that the community would have had a more difficult time growing maize, a principal crop. And think about how much maize you'd need to grow to feed the thousands of people living there. So it seems like climate change is the main culprit here. So was deforestation a part of it? Maybe. In general, it seems like Cahokia got very big. And then environmental change caused the decrease of exploitable resources, leading to an eventual collapse. Oh, hey, Panarchy! What's up? Okay, so from these sediments... Yes, in Researchers were able... In Horseshoe Lake, researchers were able to tell both the relative climate, Mm -hmm. or I guess rainfall, not necessarily climate, but long-term weather patterns. Yes. And the relative population... You know, mm-hmm. f- compare one one layer to the other. Yeah, because they're they're using different molecules from the samples. Yeah, but it, like the same sample can can mm-hmm. tell you things along multiple axes. Okay, yeah. now now my bean is getting freaked. My my bean's freaked now. This is what freaks your bean. All right, this is what freaks my bean. I know. I I understand that we've been doing this show for three years, and I have like a degree in archaeology, but I'm like really overwhelmed by how much you they can could sample find out. one sample twice. <laughs> Well, no, not that part. Just like how much you can learn oh. along how many oh, different... Oh, yeah. Isn't that great? How and many just different think like, about, proxies. And just think about like technologies that we don't use yet to analyze things like sediment samples. Exist. Well, right. But imagine <laughs> how much we could learn with oh, the I mean, advent of new technologies. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, well, I'm going to go um, dream of future technologies for <laughs> about 30 seconds. And I'll okay. meet you back here. We'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back. How's your bean? So overwhelmed. Oh. So um, this case study might hit pretty close to home since we're still in a pandemic. I don't know if you've looked around, but we're in a pandemic. Um, and I hope that you and yours are keeping safe, as safe yeah. as you can. Me too. But this case study is, I guess, heartening in a melancholy way. That's the kind of heartening I like. Um Oh, this you like um, every, just, everything melancholy flavored. I just read the next line and I'm just like, nope, that's that's exactly what I'm here for. Um, yeah, and I think it is heartening to see that human communities have dealt with large-scale disease before and that those stories can be captured in the archaeological record to provide insights for mod, mod, modern populations. If only we will look for them. Mm. So this comes from a piece in The Conversation by Shadrach Shiri Kure, who is a professor of archaeology at the University of Cape Town. So we've excerpted rather than paraphrasing here because we want to share from the primary source. Um, and this is an area that we know a very little about. Indeed. And so Professor Chiri Kure says, Archaeologists have long studied diseases in past populations. To do so, they consider a wide array of evidence, settlement layout, burials, funerary remains, and human skeletons. Research at the early urban settlement of K2, which is part of the Mapungubwe World Heritage Site, has thrown significant light on ancient pandemics. And just for clarity, K2, not the mountain. Not the mountain, also not the um, endonym for that place. <laughs> right? Like they didn't... Where do you live? Oh, K2. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, they didn't. Whoever lived there didn't call the town that. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. The inhabitants of K2, which again, not the mountain, which dates back to between 1000 and 1200 CE, thrived on crop agriculture, cattle raising, metallurgy, hunting, and collecting food from the forest. Editors note, they didn't eat the metal. No. <laughs> Just the, the rest was like very food-centered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I understand. Thank you for the clarification. Just in case <laughs> were, anyone needed it, these people did not eat metal. Chop, chop, chop. They had well-developed local and regional economies that fed into international networks of exchange with the Indian Ocean Rim. Swahili towns of East Africa acted as conduits. 
Um, also, Anna, maybe we should take a step back and tell mm. people where the Mapungubwe World Heritage Site is. Oh, I can't. Oh, no. oh boy. I'm so sorry. It's in South Africa. Okay. It's in what is today South Africa or Southern Africa. Okay. Are we going to leave that as is? Do you want me to... <laughs> I mean, I'm going to edit out the part where I knocked over my pop filter. No, I like that. I like that. I made it sound like you were like consulting an atlas. Oh, did it? It was Google. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. So let me, archaeological work. Let me consult my tome. (laughs) Archaeological work at K2. (laughs) Throw up, throw up your your windows. You, boy, out there. (laughs) Urchin, where is Mapunga, boy? Southern Africa, sir. <laughs> Thank you, boy. A shilling for your trouble. Thank you, governor. Okay. <laughs> That's right. We compensate people for their labor. <laughs> and seen. Archaeological work at K2 uncovered an unusually high number of burials, 94, 76 of which belong to infants in the zero to four age category. This translated to a mortality rate of 5%. The evidence from the site shows that the settlement was abruptly abandoned around the same time as these burials. That means a pandemic prompted the community's decision to shift to another settlement. Shifting to another region of Africa, archaeological work at early urban settlements in central and southern Ghana identified the impact of pandemics at places such as Akrokroa, uh, which was inhabited around 950 to 1300 CE, and Asikuma Odoben Rakwa in the central district of Ghana. These settlements, like others in the Birim Valley of Southern Ghana, were bounded by intricate systems of trenches and banks of earth. Evidence shows that after a couple of centuries of continuous and stable occupation, settlements were abruptly abandoned. The period of abandonment appears to coincide with the devastation of the Black Death in Europe. And it's it's worth noting here, as we've said in previous episodes, but there was trade between the African continent and Europe at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there would have been people going back and forth from those places, which is a, a vector for disease. Yeah, as we've learned. Mm-hmm. Post-pandemic, houses were not rebuilt, nor did any rubbish accumulate from daily activities. Instead, the disrupted communities went to live elsewhere. Because there are no signs of long-term effects in the form of long periods of hardship, deaths, or drastic socioeconomic or political changes, archaeologists believe that these communities were able to manage and adapt to the pandemic. Analysis of archaeological evidence reveals that these ancient African communities adopted various strategies to manage pandemics. These include burning settlements as a disinfectant as a disinfectant before either reoccupying them or shifting homesteads to new locations. African indigenous knowledge systems make it clear that burning settlements or forests was an established way of managing diseases. The layout of settlements was also important. In areas such as Zimbabwe and parts of Mozambique, for example, settlements were dispersed to one to house one or two families in a space. This allowed people to stay at a distance from one from each other, but not too far apart to engage in daily care, support, and cooperation. While social coherence was the glue that held society together, social distancing was inbuilt in a supportive way. Communities knew that outbreaks were unpredictable but possible, so they built their settlements in a dispersed fashion to plan ahead. These behaviors were also augmented by diversified diets that included fruits, roots, and other things 
that don't rhyme with those two words that provided nutrients and, and other things that provided nutrients and strengthened the immune system. Yeah. So a combination of local knowledge about foods like resources that, that are good for you and help sort of prevent or at least minimize effects of disease. And then also ways of living that are sort of where managing disease is kind of baked into it. That's sort yeah. of a really interesting way to look at town planning. <laughs> yeah. And, and also see the ways in which human groups figure stuff out, even without, say, knowledge of germ theory. Right. Because at this point, no one knew about germ theory. Nope. No one did. So for this final portion of today's episode, um, I wanted to take the idea of abandonment into the modern world just a little bit um, because ghosting? abandonment is no, not, not ghosting. I mean, not mm. that, oh, I'm not being that metaphorical. Um, I'm being much more literal, at least for this first installment. Um, so Amber, there is a link under my name on the script there. Um, it's to a mental floss article and um, it Can we is click on it? a yes. Click on it, please. It's a <laughs> list of ten modern oh. deserted places and why they were abandoned. So this will be in the show notes, so listeners can can see these images. Oh. But I thought we'd have a look and read some of the descriptions um, because it's really interesting to see these modern sites as kind of living archaeolog like living archaeological sites in, in, in a way that you could kind of go and investigate in the same way that you could investigate a place that was abandoned a thousand years ago. You could investigate a place that was abandoned 20 years ago. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat. Let's start with number two. Okay. Colmanskop, Namibia? Yeah. Colmanskop, oh. a ghost town in Spergibiet of Namibia, was built during the burgeoning diamond trade in the early 1900s. Ugh. Um, and so a bustling town soon developed, complete with a hospital ballroom. Nope, <laughs> not a hospital ballroom. Those are two things. Sounds nice. Yeah. A bustling town soon developed, complete with a hospital, ballroom, school, factory, and casino. By the end of the First World War, the town declined and richer diamond deposits were found farther south and business moved elsewhere. And so the whole place was abandoned. And now you can see the photo of it where the, the desert is encroaching. Yeah, it's a beautiful photo. Yeah, it is. It's very evocative. Um, and in 1980, the De Beers Mining Company restored many of those buildings and turned it into a tourist attraction. Oh, I'm glad De Beers was able to find a revenue stream. That's good. Oh, good for Good for them. For them. Yeah, so scrolling down, we've got a, an abandoned train station, train depot. Yeah. Very haunting. Um, Anna. Hello. Have you been to, have, have you been to um, any ghost towns? No. Have you I ever spent time in ghost towns? Um, no. And it's not that I haven't been interested. It's just that I haven't had the opportunity really because I've spent most of my time on either of the two coasts and all the ghost towns seem to be sort of in the middle um, I've, I've been to a couple here in West Virginia. Go on. They're, no, I'm just, uh, it's um, ghost towns have a specific definition. Though the term ghost town, general definitions include um, just a, a town that, so the reason for the town existing doesn't exist anymore. So these are often right. very, okay. um, yeah. some kind of extractive like economic thing. No, it's usually, well, it can be mining. It can be like, gold panning it can be other forms of 
uh, it's often mining, but just places where there's a great deal of money to be made and a local population to exploit. And then right. once you've you've exhausted those, you used it. you you, it's you hit cheaper. the omega cycle. <laughs> it's cheaper to just drop it and go on. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have ghost we have ghost towns in in West Virginia that are. Um, affiliated with both mining, with both like deep mining operations um, versus mountaintop removal mining. That's the difference. Um, right. But yeah, they're often, they're often affiliated with sort of just like mining companies that sort of mm-hmm. put them up and then leave them. Yeah. So the rest of these, I mean, they're, they're pretty spooky. There's some abandoned uh, military hospitals. Krakow is an abandoned medieval village in what is today Basilicata, Italy. And it was settled by Greeks in 540 CE. But earthquakes happened. Mm. The town was subject to various calamities, including plagues, poor agricultural conditions, and earthquakes. Between 1959 and 1972, there were all these destructive landslides, and the town became uninhabitable. So now it's just this sort of hillside spooky ruin. Um, but yeah, these will be on the show notes for you all to investigate if you choose. And lastly, Amber, I really hope you will giggle at this as much as I did, uh, which is okay. bad news for those of our listeners who don't enjoy giggles. But oh, good thing we saved it at the end. They've probably already gotten mad and stopped listening to something else for some other probably. reason. Probably. There's another kind of site that can be abandoned. I know. Websites. An internet sites, huh? Yeah. Genau. Um, and so there's a Wired article that we will have on the show notes that has a list of several websites of yesteryear. And I'd like you to just go ahead and click on the Space Jam. Oh, oh, you act like I. You you quote the, the old magic to me. I was there when it was written. I know <laughs> the Space Jam website. The Necronama oh. Jam. Give me that sexy bunny. Yeah. Unless you're referring to Bugs Bunny as sexy. But he I has mean, his, his own I'm, appeal. I'm not attracted to any of the bunnies. Yeah. Queer icon, Bugs Bunny. Um, there's no. also this one that I bet you haven't been to, which is Ugh. ghosttowns.com, speaking of. So it's like a two in one. It is The website is itself a ghost town. Oh, um, no. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> it's something, huh? Oh, this is like flashing me back to like, our the days that we would get one of our class periods in the computer lab mm-hmm. everything is smooshed to the upper left corner of the screen this is this is an extremely 1998 some, website it really is it's very oh, it's jerome's it notebook what's up jerome play the ghost towns game ghost towns tv ghost town books and videos ghost town forums you can go on a forum about those ghost towns. I'm going to the MPEG video gallery, which is very okay. different from the MPEG <laughs> video gallery. Absolutely. Do not go to that one. That is not this podcast's jam. Oh, look at uh, all these photos. Well, while you look at all those photos, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week in your ears with new content that you can find at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, at Audible, wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you miss us until the new episode comes out, you can find all of our previous episodes over on thedirtpod.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at 
the dirt pod and all of that is together on the dirtpod.com. It's not a ghost site. We update it. No, no, time. people go to it frequently. And people also go to our Patreon and support us. And we love that. And that's at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.